Well, we are at the beginning of the Thanksgiving holiday week. Oftentimes, uh, when we think about this time, we hearken back to that first Thanksgiving, and we reflect on those early pilgrims who gathered with about 90 or so uh, members of the Wapanag tribe or nation who gathered and, had a, and celebrated a successful harvest in October of 1621. Our Canadian friends kind of get it right, don't they? Their Thanksgiving holiday is always the second Monday of October after the harvest. Harvest is such uh, an important celebratory time for anyone in an agricultural community. Uh, it's truly a time to be thankful for the crops that have been harvested and the promise of sufficient food to eat, the promise of sufficient income for the next year, the promise to meet the needs of the community. So let me digress for just a minute. Why do we celebrate Thanksgiving on the fourth Thursday of the month of November? Well, in 1789, President George Washington declared the, la the Thursday, it was the last Thursday of November, Thursday, November 26, he declared to be a day of public Thanksgiving. And between President Washington and up to President Lincoln, those in office would pick a date. They would kind of follow Washington's lead and, and, chose, and, and declared the last day, the last Thursday of November to be a day of public thanksgiving. And in fact, in 1863, President Lincoln then gave his famous Thanksgiving proclamation on the last Thursday and declared that that would be the day of thanksgiving, the last Thursday of November. In 1933, it was one of those five Thursday months. And retailers, I believe from Los Angeles, reached out to President Roosevelt and said, you know, you know, they were just coming, kind of getting on the other side of the Depression. Things were starting to heat up. And they said, if we moved it to the fourth Thursday of the month, then it would give people more opportunity to shop for Christmas. Request denied. Roosevelt said no, he didn't change it. Well, six years later, we're back in that situation again, 1939. It's the fifth Thursday, or the fifth, the last Thursday of the month is the fifth Thursday of the month, and, and once again the retailers appealed to President Roosevelt, and this time he acquiesced. And he moved Thanksgiving to the fourth Thursday of the month. Two years later, Congress actually agreed upon something. And on December 26th, 1941, Thanksgiving was codified into our law as a national holiday on the fourth Thursday of November. No matter how much things change, they remain the same. Retail sales determined when Thanksgiving would be. Wow. But let's come back to the harvest. We're in the book of Ruth. We're in the climactic part of the drama that we're calling Ruth in the Old Testament. We, uh, Ruth is all about, it takes place during wheat and barley harvest. 
And uh, the wheat and barley harvest in Ruth is a time that had followed a time of drought and famine. And so it was a time to celebrate. As you know, this is the recap. You know, if you're watching a show on television, you can clip skip the recap. You can't do that with me. So this is the recap. And, and so, you know, these two widows, Naomi and Ruth, Naomi's an Israelite from Bethlehem. They come back to Bethlehem. They'd been gone. Naomi had been gone for 10 years. Ruth is her daughter-in-law. She's a Moabite, also a widow, returns to town. As widows with no male heirs, with no male protection, they are destitute. You see, it's very likely that when Naomi and her husband Elimelech left Bethlehem 10 years prior, he sold whatever property he owned to finance the trip. No, no, you know, it's not like, hey, I'm being transferred to Moab. You know, that's not the way it works. So he probably sold whatever property he had to, to finance the trip. And no, most likely that selling was to another family member because they would keep the property within the overall clan. Well, as we've seen by God's divine orchestration when Ruth and Naomi come back, Ruth goes out to glean barley and God directs her uh, into Boaz's field. Now we're coming to the end of the harvest. The threshing is taking place. The grain has been harvested. Winter is coming. Ruth and Naomi, still widows. Ruth and Naomi, still in need of some kind of male support. It's not there. There are kinsmen redeemers. We saw that in chapter 2. Kinsmen redeemers in the clan of Elimelech who could come and redeem Elimelech's property and, and begin to provide for Ruth and Naomi could, could be that one for them to give them protection. But nobody's stepping up. You see, the kinsman redeemer is not a requirement in the law. It's available. It's, op it's there. You can do it. But there wasn't an obligation. Just as, and we'll look at it in a, uh, next week, what's called leveret marriage, where a man would marry his brother-in-law's widow so that, or his brother's widow so that the widow's first son could inherit the land. It's in the law, but it's not required of the law. So no one steps up. Naomi and Ruth are still doing their best to provide for themselves. Naomi's older, and while we don't know how old, we know the typical lifespan of that era was about 50 years old. That means quite a few of us in this room are living on borrowed time. Uh, 50 years old for an adult. So Naomi's also aware she's not going to be there forever for Ruth. But you know what? Naomi is in a different state at the end of chapter 2 and at the beginning of chapter 3 than she was in chapter 1. In chapter 1, she was down. She was depressed. She was alone. God had been hard on her. He had left her empty. She had nothing. And all of a sudden, at the end of chapter 2 and now even into chapter 3, there's a, there's a rejoicing. There's a praise. Praise be to God. He's, he's put you into the field of a kinsman redeemer. He's put you in the field of a good man, a man who's, who will protect you when you're there. And with that knowledge, the curtain opens on scene 3, chapter 3. Act 3, chapter 3, and scene 1 is verses 1 through 4. Listen. One day, 
Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, said to her, My daughter, I must find a home for you where you will be well provided for. Now Boaz, with whose women you have worked, is a relative of ours. Tonight he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash, put on perfume, get dressed in your best clothes, then go down to the threshing floor. But don't let him know you are there until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he is lying. Then go uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. I will do whatever you say, Ruth answered. You know, it's interesting in Ruth chapter 1 and verse 9, Naomi prayed that the Lord would give her daughters-in-law rest in the home of another husband. And, and in a strongly patriarchal society in which women had no rights, this was the only hope for a widow who had no son to be an heir of his father's property. And it's interesting when we get to three, this here, the beginning of Act Three, scene one, Naomi sees that it's going to fall on her to be that answer to that prayer. Uh, she realizes that she's going to have to do what should have been done. See, in those days, the, 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 the fathers would get together. The father of the groom, the father of the bride would get together and they would negotiate. They would negotiate a dowry. How much are you going to uh, give to me and they would negotiate a bride price what is this bride worth and and there would be that negotiation uh and uh there was nobody to negotiate for ruth there was nobody to negotiate on behalf of ruth so naomi realizes she needs to step up ruth has been working for weeks in the fields of boaz since he's offered protection uh, and so there's no doubt that the most logical person to appeal to would be Boaz. Now, Naomi knows a little bit about Boaz. She knows that he's a hands-on guy. He's not, he, he delegates, he had delegated to his seer to watch over things, but he also likes to be at the threshing floor. He likes to be there when it's gone. There's a couple reasons why he might like to be at the threshing floor. He want, might want to see that things are done right. But we are in a time, and we, never, we should never forget this. We're in a time in biblical history where everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So maybe he's at the threshing floor to kind of provide some protection for his product before it goes to market. Ruth is told, put on a new garment. By the way, the, the translation in verse 3, your best clothes, it's not really a good translation. That gives you the impression that for over those 30 or 40 miles from Moab to Bethlehem, Ruth was lugging a Samsonite with her with all her good clothes in it. Now, she probably had one outfit that was a day-by-day -day outfit and the outfit of a widow because a widow would wear an outfit of mourning, and basically it's change out of your clothes of mourning, change into your regular clothes. Bathe, put on perfume, go down to the threshing floor. Wait until he's eaten his meal, lay down there, uncover his feet and lay down. He'll provide the instructions. And Ruth agrees to that, and you need to understand something right here. This is a plan that has so many minds in it. This is a plan that could go south in a hurry. This is a plan that is risky at best. It was not safe for a woman to be out on her own after dark in a time when everyone did what was right in their own eyes, especially a foreigner. 
this was not safe. Ruth runs the risk of being accosted. Ruth runs the risk of being attacked. Ruth runs the risk of having her life taken from her. There is great risk in this plan. Sometimes desperate times require desperate measures. But in, in a positive sense, two things stand out. First, Ruth has complete trust in Naomi. She has grown to trust and respect Naomi. Ruth is a Moabite. This plan probably sounds really, really crazy to her. It sounds crazy to us. It, 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 I will tell you now and again, it is unprecedented. What happens here is unprecedented in the Bible and it's unparalleled in the Bible. It never happens before or again. This is a single time. So she agrees to it. But I think more significantly, a second thing that stands out, and I think maybe that which stands out for our lives, is the fact that we see this unique interplay, this unique interplay between what we called last week divine orchestration, God arranging the events and the connections of our lives so that we can choose to join him in his work. We see that unique, and we see the human aspect of that. You see, God orchestrated the events that brought Ruth into Boaz's field. It wasn't just a perchance thing. God was at work. Boaz has already developed throughout his life as a kind and protective man. He cares for Ruth not because of anything other than that's the right thing to do. God's working, though, behind the scenes. So Naomi, knowing that she needs to find permanent protection for Ruth, knowing that she needs to take care of her. And interestingly enough, Naomi's concern now is more for Ruth than for herself. She wants Ruth to be cared for. She wants Ruth to come under someone's protection. She feels she needs to find a more permanent home for Ruth. No father, no husband, no other male figure to make the arrangements. So Ruth says, we got we to gotta do something. Or Naomi says, we've got to do something, so Naomi acts. And here's the thing I want you to remember. We are each responsible to actively enter into the process of God's work. I'm going to tell you, sometimes it's not one of those things where you're saying, I'm entering into the process of God's work. Sometimes it's just doing the next right thing that God puts in front of. And in essence, Naomi is just doing the next right thing. We've got to do this. We need to move ahead. Naomi's not sitting there thinking, you know what? If I do this, if I do that, if I move the pieces over here, then God's going to do this. She's just saying, I, 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 I need to find some way to get Boaz to notice that Ruth is in need. We, we need to reach out to him. There's nobody to advocate for us. We need to advocate for ourselves. It's a fine line. It's a fine line, but God wants us to be part of what he's doing, not just taking matters into our own hands. And it, it's hard sometimes to discern, am I taking matters in my own hand or is God doing it? And so I think it's just best to say, just do the next right thing that God puts in front of you. And sometimes it's as simple as, and, and you know, it happens more in the city than it does out here. I remember once I'm in Chicago and I was supposed to get, uh, it was actually the first time that we were meeting with our future son-in-law's parents. 
And we were down at Moody. There had been a musical thing. And my job was to go three blocks down the road and pick up all the Subway sandwiches that we had pre-ordered. And so I'm going down Subway, and a guy comes and asks me for a meal. Now, I'm in a hurry. You know what? In that moment, and I don't always do this, I will confess. I said, would you just come with me? And we walked in, and, and I said, just order whatever you want. And I, the guy was there. I said, I'm, I'm picking up this order. Add this to mine. And boom, 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 and we were done. I, I don't know if that guy went away praising God or not. I know that it was the right thing in the moment, and I think that's an illustration. Sometimes we just do the next right thing that's right in front of us. And it may be big and sweeping. It may be just so simple as to walk up to a coworker and say, hey, how you doing? You look like you're struggling. Can I listen to you for a while? Let's, let me get you a cup of coffee. Let's talk. It's, it, it could be that simple. But God wants us to be part of what he's doing. There are a ton of what ifs in Ruth chapter 3. What ifs that Naomi has absolutely no control over but this one thing, helping Ruth to have a voice when there's no voice for her, that's something she can do. Scene two opens as the sun is setting. Ruth is ready. She's put on her regular clothes. She's washed. She's put on a little hint of perfume. And she makes her way quietly to the threshing floor. And she waits. The author tells us that Boaz has this great meal. He's full. He's satisfied. Uh, now some want to construe that maybe he's actually inebriated here. But the language won't allow that. You know, last night we had friends over and grilled out some hamburgers and we had a meal together. I, I took a block of cream cheese and I put it in my smoker for a couple hours and pulled it out. We had smoked cream cheese on crackers for appetizers. Sorry, there's none left, but Thanksgiving Day, 1 o'clock right here. I got two bricks coming. So, you know, think about it. Might want to pray about that. Uh, but, uh, you know, and at the end of the night, when we, it was just me and Charlene, at the end of the night we sat down and we said, this was good. This was a good time. Good friends, good food, good time together. Boaz, it's a good tired. He's, he's had a great meal. He's full. He's satisfied. His, his crops have come in. His fields look good. It was a bumper crop. He's content. He's pleased. He's in a good mood. And he lays down after a good, hard day's work and just is ready to rest, completely satisfied. And Ruth waits in the shadows until she is sure he's asleep. And I don't think it's with great confidence that she approaches where he is. She approaches quietly, lays down at his feet, uncovers the corner of his blanket and puts it over her, her herself to, to get a little bit of warmth. It's dark. Maybe in the distance you can hear other people having more of a threshing floor party. Let me clarify again. 
This is not a manual for any sort of a dating practice. Don't try this at home, kids. The language of this section is going to talk about the honorable nature of Ruth. So those who say that she's trying to seduce Boaz, they're not right. Because that's not what's going on here. There is lots of evidence historically that threshing floors, especially in a time where everyone does what's right in their own eyes, threshing floors were a place of lax and, and immoral activity. That is known, but that's not the case here. That would have been a disaster for Ruth. Had this been some sort of sexual encounter, and had it been discovered, the words of a wealthy Jewish man of standing, landowner, against the word of a widow, a Moabite, a stranger, Ruth would have lost. Her life would have been forfeit. Some say the word for feet here. Oh, but it's a word that literally means extremities, the hands and the feet. There is absolutely no seduction going on here. Don't ever let anybody tell you that. This is strange. It's different. We have no precedent for it, no parallel in the rest of Scripture, but we have nobody else in Scripture that is mentioned that is in this particular situation. It's not a pattern for us to follow. It's simply Ruth doing what she was told to do, completely trusting that Naomi knows what she's doing, willing to trust that Boaz is not going to do something awful. Just like any of us, Boaz's feet get cold in the middle of the night. Remember, out in the, in the Middle East, in, the, in, the, in that climate, it may be warm during the day, but at night it gets cold. And so Boaz is there, and all of a sudden, the Bible says, he, um, where am I? Yeah, there you go. In the middle of the night, verse 8, something startled the man. I'll say, something startled the man. He turned, and there was a woman lying at his feet. <laughs> right? And not only are his feet cold, it's like, ah! I mean, it's dark. There's no night lights. It's like, and don't look at this as him saying, who are you? <laughs> no way. Who are you? He's spitting that out. What, what are you doing here? Who are you? Imagine for a moment. Imagine Ruth. I don't know how long she's been lying there. I bet you a dollar she didn't sleep. She's been lying there shivering. She's been lying there in the cold. She's been lying there hoping, you know, Naomi, this better work. <laughs> this had better turn out, Naomi, because this, is, this just doesn't, nothing about this feels good. And all of a sudden, Boaz starts and he sits up. Who are you? And now Ruth has to respond. And I don't think her reply is calm and confident. I think there's a bit of a stutter there. I think it's... <laughs> I'm, 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 I'm Ruth, your servant. <laughs> and like, have you ever played hide and seek and you're going into a room and somebody else is going into a room, you bah! And you see, I think it's like, oh, oh, it's you. Okay. Imagine the relief. Imagine his relief to hear, I am your servant. 
Ruth. Imagine her relief to not feel a swift kick. Get out of here! What are you even doing here? You need to be gone. I can't be seen with you. Go! But no, this is a scene of relief because Boaz's character and Ruth's character shine through here. I'm your servant, Ruth. By the way, that word servant, very important because see, in chapter 2, she had referred to himself and says, I'm not even worthy to be one of your servants. That word servant is a word that means a female slave. And Ruth is saying in there in chapter 2 when she first is introduced to Boaz, I'm not even worthy to be called one of your slaves. But this word servant is different because it was against the law for a landowner to marry a slave or to even have a relationship with a slave. But Ruth says, no, I'm your handmaiden. I'm your maiden. I'm your servant. I'm your maidservant. It's not against the law for that. She refers to herself that way. And, and she's in, in essence saying, I'm here, and I need you. So then she uses words that are very similar to what he uses. Remember he said, may you be blessed by the God of Israel under whose wings you have sought refuge. And now she's saying, in essence, cover me with the corner of your garment. I am now seeking refuge, Boaz, under your wings. I'm inviting you to be a kinsman redeemer. And his response is one that is complimentary and encouraging and reassuring. Notice what he says. The Lord, verse 10, the Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. This kindness is greater than, what you, than that which you showed earlier. What is the kindness she showed earlier? He knows. Everybody knows. He told her that. Everybody knows how you came here, how you left your father and your mother and your family, and you came here with Ruth. That is an amazing kindness. And now he's saying, by you reaching out to me, wow, this is even a greater kindness. He says this, you've not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. Boaz is going, you know, (laughs) I kind of thought I'd missed my chance. I kind of thought I had missed the opportunity. Somehow it just didn't ever work out. We have no record, no record of Boaz having any wife or children at all before this. And so here's Boaz saying, you know, I've worked hard. Maybe I missed my chance. Maybe I was too much of a nice guy. Maybe I should have been a little more of a bad boy. And then, you know, but he said, you've, you've 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 come after me. I'm an old guy. Now, if we put the ages around what was typical, Ruth would have probably been married at about 14 to Milan, her, her husband, and this is 10 years, so she's probably in her about 24. Boaz, typically a, a man would be married about 30, so maybe he's maybe 34, 35, so it's not like they're really old, but when you only have 15 years left by average, yeah, that's he's saying, wow, I, I had missed it, and well, you've come to me. The kindness that she has uh, pursued uh, is, is she's not flaunted herself. And he reassures her what he's going to do. He says, I'm going to explicitly try to redeem you. Notice what he says. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. Wow. What great words to hear. Don't be afraid, Ruth. You can stop shaking now. I know it's cold. 
don't be afraid. I'm going to do all that you ask. Look at this. Verse 11, all the people of my town know that you are a woman of noble character. And although it's true that I'm a guardian redeemer of our family, there's another who's more closely related than I. Stay here for the night. In the morning, if he wants to do his duty as your guardian redeemer, let him redeem you. But if he's not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Lie here until morning. In other words, Boaz says, Ruth, we're going to do the right thing here. And there's someone else. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make sure that you get redeemed. I'm going to make sure that you get taken care of. I am going to make sure that you come under the protection of our clan. And if the other guy won't do it, I'm going to do it. We're going to protect you. Can you imagine the relief? For the first time, Ruth feels that sense of, okay, it's going to be okay. Notice this, too. He calls her a woman of noble character. Do you know that word, that phrase is only used one other time in the entire Bible? In Proverbs 31.10. A woman of noble character. A wife of noble character. That drama builds. He lets her know that there's another. So he encourages her to stay there. Why? Why doesn't he just say, okay, go back home to Naomi? Because it's dark and it's dangerous and he's naturally a protector. But early in the morning, before there's any talk, before there's any gossip, before there's any, whoa, Bo, dude, no, none of that. Before there's any of that, he, they get up, he gives her grain to take home to Naomi and sends her on her way. And, I, and what I see here is the desperate faith of Ruth. There are so many things, as I've already said, so many things in this whole section that could have gone wrong in a hurry. Boaz could have misinterpreted her actions as an uncalled for advance and rejected her. And in so doing, he would have rejected Naomi. Boaz could have taken advantage of her in, 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 in a way that she could have done nothing about. Boaz could have awakened everybody else on the threshing floor and brought shame and disgrace to Ruth. All of those were possibilities in a time in which everyone does what is right in his own eyes. But none of that happens. And there is a more powerful reality that comes through in this scene. Here's something interesting. I noticed it the other day. The Bible is not shy about describing people. Jacob goes to, this, to Laban and he sees Rachel who's beautiful and Leah who has weak eyes. Joseph is called a man who is well built and handsome. Esther is called beautiful with fine form. Sarah, Abraham's wife, is called beautiful. The Bible is not shy about telling us that somebody was beautiful, that they were attractive, that they were easy on the eyes. In the book of Ruth, there is absolutely no physical description of Ruth or Boaz. We have no clue if she was had weak eyes or was beautiful. We have no clue. We have no clue if Boaz was well-built and handsome or if he kind of looked like me that had a few too many stakes. We have no clue because I believe there's purpose in that. And it's simply this. There is an attractiveness to a gentle, godly character. There is an attractiveness to a gentle, 
godly character. Long after the, the, the looks have faded, long after the athleticism has gone, it's been put back in the locker room, long after that, the person with a godly and gentle character, someone that people are just naturally drawn to. Naomi and Ruth are drawn to Boaz, not because he's a good-looking guy, not because he's wealthy, but because he's a man of character. Boaz is a man who does the right thing. Boaz and the town folk are drawn to Ruth, not because she's this beautiful Moabite who came in and everybody's going, whoa, it's because she came in and she had given herself and sacrificed for her mother-in-law and she's seen as a person of honor and a person of noble character. A person of godly character doesn't need to advertise it. They just live their lives. A person of godly character doesn't promote their brand. They just live. Godly character is seen in the daily routines of people who have grown to put God first and live life in a gentle and quiet way that reflects the goodness and the love and the integrity and the compassion and even the righteousness of our God. You see, people of gentle, godly character, they're safe. People of gentle, godly character are trustworthy. People of gentle, godly character have integrity. People of, gen of gentle, godly character have this inner strength that you and I find it hard to describe. In a real sense, I would urge you, go back and review our study of the nine aspects of the fruit of the Spirit. And I would submit to you long before there was a knowledge of the Holy Spirit, the way Paul describes the Spirit, God was at work. In this scene, I see two people who show evidence of the practical reality of the fruit of the Spirit in the lives of two people who are just living their daily lives. And one of them is a Moabite, a stranger, a foreigner, who we aren't even sure how much she knows about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But God sees her. And can I tell you today, God sees you. And when you and I work to just be gentle, godly people, there is an attractiveness to that. The curtain closes on scene three with the audience sitting at the edge of their seat. Or scene two with the audience sitting at the edge of their seat like, whoa, what's going to happen next? And verse 14 says, she lay there at his feet until morning, but got up before anyone could be recognized. No one must know that a woman came to the threshing floor, he says. But he also says this, notice this, bring me the shawl, always the provider. Bring me the shawl that you were wearing, hold it out. And when he did show, so, she did so, he poured into it six measures of barley. There are dissertations written on how much six measures of barley is. doesn't really matter. He gave her some barley. Barley that had been harvested. They went back to town. Curtain opens, scene three. I could just see scene three all night. Naomi's just been pacing. 
So the curtain opens, and there's Naomi pacing, like, oh, man, oh, I hope she comes back. I hope this went well. Oh, God, what was I thinking? You know, I just imagine. And so she comes back, and Naomi asks that question, right? How'd it go? Tell me everything. Tell me everything. You know, sit down. Let's have a cup of tea. I don't know if they did coffee back then. I would, for me, it would have been good, strong coffee. Sit down. How'd it go? Tell me, my daughter, how'd it go? Then she told her everything. Boaz had done for her and added, and this is really important, he gave me these six measures of barley saying, don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. The writer of the book of Ruth is so good at tying things together because in Ruth chapter 1 and verse 21, Naomi says, I went out full and I came back empty. And now Boaz says, don't go back to your mother empty-handed. Now all of a sudden, Naomi is realizing that God is filling her up again. Then Naomi said, wait, my daughter, until you find out what happens. For the man will not rest until the matter is settled today. She tells Ruth to wait. She honestly believes Boaz has both the means and the desire to see that whatever it is, this matter is settled. And right now, if it's you and I, and we're in the story, and we don't know about chapter 4, we don't know how the matter is going to be settled. We don't know what's going to happen. I mean, you know, I'm a romantic. I want to see it all end perfectly. I want to see everybody get done. The, the guy gets the girl, the girl gets the die, and we tie it up in a neat picture. But right now, we're left with... Dun, dun, dun. We don't know what's going to happen. All she can do is wait. And that's the third thing I want to leave you with today. Waiting for God to act is the hardest, best thing we can do. Waiting for God to act is the hardest, best thing we can do. Sometime God puts a path in front of us and we have the the responsibility of walking into it. But sometimes God says, stay put. I recall the Henry Blackaby in his experiencing God. He says, what we're supposed to do is keep doing the last thing God told or showed you to do until he directs you otherwise. Keep doing what God has told you to do till he directs you otherwise. God, waiting requires trust. Ruth and Naomi had to trust the word of Boaz. Waiting obviously requires patience, but waiting is not inactivity in the Bible. Waiting is actively doing what God has put in front of you right now until he shows you differently. For you and me, waiting means staying in communication with God. It means that we're listening for him to guide us. That we are leaning on him for patience. That we are leaning on one another for strength. It is the hardest, best thing you can do. In 1992, as a 33-year-old man, I went to the elders of our church after I had preached several series of sermons and everything else. And I said, since our pastor's retired, I would like to be considered as a candidate. And I was told I was too young. They brought in someone who was five years older than me. And I was ready to leave. And my dear wife said, it's not time. For three years, I wanted to leave. 
I wanted to go somewhere else. And we waited, and we waited, and we waited until August of 1995. Together, I don't remember which one said it first. I remember walking in the house and looking at each other, and it was kind of, maybe we said it in unison. I think it's time. And a year later, I was here with my family in this place. And you know what? I have had people question me. Scott, you've been there 10 years. Don't you think it's time to move on? No. God hasn't told me to. I know what it's like to be called away from a place where all three of my kids were born, where I owned a house, where I was, I was, I was somebody, you know. It was a small town. But I was one, one of the biggest churches in town. I knew people. I knew the mayor by first name. I mean, you know, it's not time. Somebody came to me and said, Scott, you've been here 18 years. Isn't it time? Have, don't you think you've worn out your welcome? No, because God hasn't called me. Scott, you're, it's 27 plus years now. No, because God hasn't called me. Waiting and doing what God has called you to do might be the hardest, best thing, but I'm going to tell you too, it's the most satisfying thing. Ruth waited. She didn't have to wait 10 years, 18 years, 27 years, but I'm telling you, when you're waiting for something to happen, it feels like 10, 15, or 20 years. She waited. The curtain closes, and Ruth and Naomi as it were, are sitting at the kitchen table and they are waiting. And maybe you are too. Not just for the conclusion of this drama. Maybe you're waiting. Maybe you're waiting and seeking God for guidance. Maybe like me, you're waiting to sit with God, would you just bring true justice and peace in this world? I'm tired of turning on the news and seeing all this stuff going on. Come, Lord Jesus. Maybe you're waiting. Maybe you wait for those who suffer and long for relief. Maybe you're waiting for Jesus to return and set everything right. We're waiting. But waiting in the Bible is not doing nothing. It would seem that this whole scene took place during harvest. Somehow kind of maybe in the middle of the harvest, maybe near the end. You know what? I kind of wonder if maybe there was still some grain out there being harvested. And if that's the case, you know what I see? I see Ruth getting up and putting on her work clothes and going back out and taking her basket and going back out to see if there's a few more stalks of grain in Boaz's field. Because you know what? I can wait here and do nothing, but we still need to eat. She and Naomi had to eat. I realize that's sanctified imagination. I got, you know, I'm just think, making that up. But it fits the character of Ruth that we've seen so far. Ruth... That matters in Boaz's hands. I can't do anything about it. She believes this. In one way, shape, or form, my circumstances are going to be redeemed. My needs are going to be met. I can wait. The best way to wait on a God who is divinely orchestrating the events of our lives is to simply do what he's put before you. Keep doing what God has given you to do right now. What I take from this is that Ruth and Naomi did all they could to join God in changing their circumstances, and now they wait. And I think most of us can relate. You see, God is working. God is always at work. 
And sometimes we're called to watch, wait, and trust his timing. And sometimes we're called to step in to the next thing that he gives us. But when you learn to wait actively on God and see his hand, you will respond with gratitude and thanks. And you'll have the strength to take the next step, waiting again with more confidence in God. This is a week of thanksgiving. It's a week to to give thanks for all that God's done for us. A week to give thanks for the people he's brought in our paths. And I trust that it will be a week that you can look back and you can see, even in the midst of the waiting, I can now see where God was orchestrating, where God was working, and that you can have courage to say, okay, God, whatever the next thing is, I'm waiting for you. And as you wait, just do the next right thing that God puts in front of you. Father, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for this great drama that we've had the privilege of going through that we call the book of Ruth. And I ask, Lord, that as we continue to go through this time, as we continue to think about Ruth, as we head into this holiday week of Thanksgiving, that we would be encouraged and that we would be strengthened as we learn to wait on you. In Jesus' name, amen.